good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. If you're brand new, if you're new to our campus, my name is Doug and I'm the East Campus Pastor and we are delighted that you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 5. We'll get there in just a few moments, but as we've gone through the last couple of weeks, we said that there's been kind of a, within this large series of the Gospel of John, there has been kind of this small uh, series we've done that dates back really to our uh, anniversary Sunday, September 17th, where we celebrated 10 years and, and We've been talking about for those last five or six weeks, the notion of being all in. And we've kind of come to a sweet spot in John's gospel where we saw in chapter three, all the way through chapter five, different individuals that Jesus came across or stories of different individuals where we learned what does it really mean to be all in. And it started with Nicodemus. And in Nicodemus, we saw that being all in for him was about belief. It was about believing who Jesus was. And then the next week we saw John the Baptist, and it's one of my favorite uh, stories in John chapter 3, because in that story where the disciples of John the Baptist are upset that Jesus is getting more credit than he does, John says the most fascinating thing that really should be the heart of every believer. Do you remember what he said? He said, he must, what? Increase, and I must decrease. And if we're going to be all in with the Lord, there's got to be something deep within our hearts that goes, Jesus needs to increase in my life. Increase is my priority, and I must decrease. And then we came across this amazing woman in chapter 4, the woman at the well, right? And this woman at the well, we saw Jesus, and we saw him do something that Jews typically never did, that he went through Samaria, not around Samaria, and on the way there, he stops at Jacob's well, and he meets this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, and Jesus offers her water and says, if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. And we learn that part of being all in is looking for divine moments and divine appointments that God has set aside that when we interact, that we seize those moments and point them to Jesus. And then last week, we saw a royal official, right? This guy that comes to Jesus and says, hey, listen, I need you to go heal my son. He's, he's, about, to, he's about to die. And Jesus just speaks the words, right? And the son is healed. And what we saw is from this royal official is that the key for us being all in is having a spirit of desperation. And I don't know about you, but desperate's hard for me because I have a lot of pride. Do you? I have a lot of, I think that I'm right. I got this. I can fix this. I'm in control. And desperation says none of those things are true. I don't have this, I'm not in control, and I don't got this. But what I need is I need someone who is in control, someone who does have this, and so I'm going to go to the only person I know, and I'm going to go to King Jesus. And so from the royal official, we learned that being all in is having a heart of desperation. So my prayer over the last several weeks has been this, that we would look at these passages and go, you know what? Am I desperate for the Lord? Do I have a heart to be sensitive to the divine appointments and moments that God has given me? Is there something deep within me that goes, he must increase and I must decrease? Do I know that I have put my faith in him? I hope we've asked those questions because today as we kind of wrap up this mini-series in John, we'll continue in John next week as well, but this mini-series about being all in, I want us to look at something different. I want us to look at the hurdles of being all in. 
What are the things that are in front of us that might keep us from being desperate? That might keep us from saying, he must increase and I must decrease. What are the hurdles that are in front of us? If you have your Bibles, John chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And there's really two hurdles I want to point out this morning. And here's the first hurdle. It's the hurdle of superstition. Now, you know what superstition is, right? Superstition is when you put your faith in something that seems to be powerful and cosmic, but it's vain. Can we just say it that way? Now, look at what it says in verse 1. Let's go to verse 1. After there, in other words, after this royal official, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's real pause there. The reason that's important is it lets us know the time frame that's going on. So this is about 12 to 18 months after he's met with Nicodemus. So we're, we're like 12 to 18 months into his ministry. Verse 2 says this. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic that's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind lame and paralyzed. And so what we see in the story is that Jesus comes back to Jerusalem and close to the temple in the northeast corner is this, is this pool of Bethesda. And this pool of Bethesda had these five large porticos or porches where all these invalids would come lay. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And they would come lay there. And you might say, well, Doug, why in the world would all these people come? Now, it was, listen, if you thought about it, it was almost like, have you ever, have you ever done something where you tell people like, they just kind of keep the carrot out in front of you. And every time you get closer, the carrot just kind of keeps moving. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of what they experienced because they're not far from the temple, but because they are invalids, they're lame, they're paralyzed, they're blind. They don't get to go in. They're viewed as unclean, but they can see the temple. They're that close. And so they lay by this pool of Bethesda. They're just laying there. And why? You said, Doug, why would they lay there? It's because of superstition. Now, Scripture does not clearly define the superstition. But if you were to go back and read Roman, our Jewish historians, they would tell you the superstition of Bethesda. And it was this. They believed that occasionally an angel would show up and he would stir the pool waters of Bethesda. And when the waters got stirred, if you were the first invalid, remember lame, blind, or paralyzed, if you were the first one in the pool, that you would be healed. So you had to be first. So if you're blind, you're probably at a disadvantage, right? So you had to be first. So as soon as the waters began to stir, you had to be the first one in the pool so that you could be healed. And if you got in the pool and you weren't healed, then you got out and guess what you did? You waited. You waited for the next time. You waited for the next moment. And the thing is, why did they wait? Because their dreams could come true. Because if you were paralyzed, you didn't want to be paralyzed. If you're blind, you don't want to be blind. If you were lame, you don't want to be lame. And so you waited. Your life was waiting at the pool of Bethesda, hoping and praying that this superstition would come true. And here's what you need to know. If you also read Jewish history, you'd find out this. There's absolutely zero accounts of this ever happening. Zero. But yet their hope was in a superstition. Their faith of being healed was in something that was vain and worthless. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Look at me in verse 5 and 6. It says this. One man was there who had been an, an invalid for 38 years. Years. Pause. How long had he been at the pool? He'd been invalid for 38 years. We don't know exactly how long, but we can think most of those 38 years, this guy's been at the pool. 
Can you think about the hopelessness this guy must have felt? Whether there was one time, no times, or tons of times, they thought the waters were stirring for whatever reason, and this guy had never been healed. This guy has been invalid for 38 years, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's still waiting at the pool. Would you be filled with hope at that moment if that was you? No. And so this guy's there. Look what happens next. Verse 6. It says this. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, if you read that without context, you might think Jesus was being patronizing, right? Because what would be the answer if you were lame, blind, or crippled, and Jesus walked up to you and go, hey, Drew, do you want to be healed? What would be your answer? Yeah, I want to be healed. I mean, like, okay, duh, like, I can't see, or I can't move, or, I mean, they're, like, Jesus, why would you ask this question? And I would submit to you this morning that there is power in the question. Why would Jesus ask a guy who's been an invalid for 38 years, do you want to be healed? Why? Because he's letting them know, listen, let's focus on what matters. You're an invalid. Let's put all the superstition aside. Let's put all the circumstance around you aside. And let's draw in on the truth of the matter. You need some help. Right? Do you, are, you, are, are you with me on that? Do you, you really need to, do you really want to be healed? Let's put this superstition aside. Let's forget your neighbors for a minute. Do you really want to be healed? Why else would Jesus ask that question? Because he was offering help. Well, Doug, how in the world can you ask that question and you think that's Jesus offering help? Well, let me give an example. Let's say we're driving down the road. And let's say on the way home today, I see Rachel Jesse over on the side and she's got a flat tire. And I pull over and I get out and I come to Rachel. Hey, Rachel, do you need what? Help. help. And she says, yes, I need some help. Well, I hope it works out for you. I'm going to get in my truck and go home, right? Is that what I would do? No, I would call Ron and say, come help your wife. No, I mean, well, I, would help, I would help her, right? I mean, if I paused and asked the question, what is the implication of the question? I'm here to help. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Hey, let's forget the pomp and circumstance of what's going on around you. I'm here. I'm ready to help you. Another reason Jesus would have asked this question is because it reflected to this guy the depth of his love and concern for him. Nobody else. The, the, look, the people, the invalids at the pool of Bethesda were the, were the have-nots of the world. Nobody hung around these people. They, were, they didn't have a friend group. And Jesus shows up and asks the most basic question, not to patronize the guy, but to let him know, listen, I'm here to help you. Why? Because I have a deep love and concern for you. Let me ask you this. With a show of hands... And revealing nothing. How many of you would say that in your life, whether it be physical or spiritual, you've got some real needs in your life? Come on, show of hands. I do. And if King Jesus stood right in front of you and said, hey, Doug, do you want me to heal you? Do you want me to help you? Do you want me to give you a path? Because I love you. I'm concerned for you. And I'm here to help. What would our answer be? Come on, what would our answer be? Yes. 
Well, let's look what this guy says. Look at verse 7. He says this, And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and so I'm going to need another to go step down before me. Look at that again. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps in before me. It's almost like this guy looks at Jesus and goes, Hey, could you slide over a little bit because I can't see the pool? Right? Where was his hope? Where was his hope? In the pool. And yet God in the flesh, God in a bod, Jesus is standing right in front of him. And it's like, ah, could you just slide over a little bit because I'm watching the pool. Because if I don't get in first, somebody's going to crash in in front of me. And this guy clinging to a superstition caused him to miss God in front of him. Now, how sad is that? I say it's pretty sad, wouldn't you? That this guy, 38 years, and Jesus shows up and says, I'm here to help you. I love you. I'm concerned for you. Do you want to be healed? Eh, could you slide over just a little bit? I'm still looking at the pool. Here's a question. This guy held on to superstition. What about you? Are you superstitious? I know some of us go, no, I'm not superstitious. Well, I know some of us are thinking when I say superstition, you're thinking Friday the 13th, which we had a couple weeks ago, and y'all made it through it. So that's good. Some of you be like, oh, you don't pass under a ladder because that's whatever that is. I don't even know that one. My dad's big one was it was the lucky clothes. Anybody have a lucky clothes family member that's lucky clothes or lucky elements of your clothing that, that brings luck? Because like when I was in Little League Baseball, I was nine years old, and we went undefeated. But our first game, our very first game, my dad wore uh, these old beat-up brown shoes that kind of slid on. They would be like, hey, dudes, today. But back then, I don't know what they were called. And then he wore, some of you older ones remember this, he he wore the, uh, the gray spandex coaches shorts. Anybody remember those? Way too tight, should never be worn. But that's what he wore. And then he wore what I called an old man polo. It was a polo shirt that had elastic around the waist because he, like his son, had a gut. And so it kind of hit everything. And so my dad wore that. And we won the first game like 21 to nothing. And so my dad told my mom, hey, next game, have my clothes ready for me. And she's like, well, Jimmy, those clothes don't matter. I know, but have those ready for me. And every game, all the way through the championship with which we won it, he wore the same exact clothes. I didn't ask him about underwear, but I'm suspecting he probably went that far too. He wore everything the same. Now, did the superstition win us that? No, because we were just that good. And he would say he's not superstitious, but there was an element of him that just kind of held on to that. What about this one? I know you've heard all this one is, what about when you blow out your birthday candles? What do you have to do? You make a what? And you can't do what? You can't tell because it won't come true. So we live in a world that's superstitious, right? But I would say that even Christians use superstitious jargon. Stuff like this. God helps those who help themselves. Right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap on to... That, that somehow that I've got to get off my backside and do what I need to do. And that God's like, you know what? You need to do what you can do. Then I'll come in and do the rest of it. Like, you know, I, God's only going to help those who step up and help themselves. That's superstition. Another one is this. And you've heard this one said, follow your heart. No. 
The Bible says your heart is deceitful and wicked above everything else. Your heart will take you down the wrong trail every single time. But we've all had it hard to set right. And some of you that are like really spiritual, you'll say it this way. Follow your gut, right? Follow your gut. What about this one? What goes around comes around. That's called karma, right? That's Christian karma. And my point is this, is that, that Jesus knew that, that this guy was clinging to superstition. And I would say that there's a lot of us in the room that we cling to some similar superstition. We may cling to this, this idea that somehow I've got to work in order for God to intervene in my life. Or that somehow I've got to follow my heart instead of following the truth of his word. Or somehow that I've got to, you know, that if someone's harmed me, that I can sit up in my lofty ivory tower and go, God's going to get them. Listen, those are superstition and they are in vain and I mean this with a lot of love in my heart some of us are clinging to those kinds of superstition but Jesus knew that Jesus knew this guy's heart and he knew our heart and knows our heart so look what he does in verse 8 look over to me in verse 8 Jesus said to him get up take your bed and walk and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked and so this guy, like, hey, Jesus, could you slide over? I'm still looking at the pool. And Jesus, understanding that this guy is clinging to a modern-day superstition, decides to show up and to show out in a powerful way. And he basically says this. You ready? Get up, take your bed, and walk. So what does that tell us about this guy? That he obviously was a cripple, right? Had he walked? Not for 38 years. Had he got up? Not for 38 years. Had he ever picked up a mat? Not for 38 years. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, get up, walk, and take up your mat. Why did Jesus do it this way? Because he wanted to remind this guy on this day and everybody watching that it's me who you need, not superstition. It's me that brings healing, not superstition. I am the answer, not your silly superstition. Jesus just said it. And the man was healed. Why? Because Jesus wanted this guy. And listen, Jesus wants us to lean on him. Not superstitions of the world. Don't lean on your Christian karma because it's not true. Don't lean on your follow your gut because it's going to lead you down the wrong path. Don't lean on the notion that somehow you've got to help God get his job done. No, he's quite sufficient without you. And so Jesus heals this guy to remind him, I'm the one who healed you. I'm the one that does this, not your silly superstition. Lean on me. And I want to suggest to you this morning that maybe one of the reasons, one of the hurdles that keep you and I from being all in for Christ is superstition. Another one is, and this is maybe where most of us fit, the second hurdle, hurdle number two is legalism. Legalism. Now, if you were with us in the Galatians series, it seemed like that was Paul's theme throughout the whole book. If you were here when we talked about Nicodemus four weeks ago, that was a very much part of what we talked about. So I'm not going to go into great depth, but I want you to know this, that one of the hurdles that these people face, not this man, but the people that show up on the scene later, these Jewish people, and one of the things that you and I wrestle with is the idea of legalism. Look with me in verse 9 through 13. Look what it says. Verse 9 says this, And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed, and he walked. Pause. Do you think this guy was now filled with joy? Yes. 
Come on, do you think this guy was filled with joy? Yeah. Look what happens. Verse 9, he was healed and he walked. Now that day was the what? The Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. So the Jews said to the man who was healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So I did, right? And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is the idea of legalism here. First, we saw this man holding on to superstition. Now we see Jewish people that show up on the scene and they're holding on to legalism, right? This Jewish crowd has seen this man has been healed. Why? Because now he's vertical. He's picked up his mat, and he's walking. But what you notice there, it says, and this happened on the Sabbath. And for Jews, that was a problem. We don't do things on the Sabbath. For the Jewish people, the Sabbath was about two things. Number one, it was about taking all of your time and focusing in on God. Nothing wrong with that. And the second thing was, you were not to work. On the Sabbath, you couldn't work. Now, let me say this to you. Like, for those of you that are going to hopefully, if we get to, you're going to go to Israel with me next May. If you don't want, if you haven't signed up yet, you can still go. Hopefully that trip's going to work out. But for those of us, if we get to go to Israel, here's what we're going to find out. On the Sabbath day over there, they won't even turn the light switch on. That's how extreme they've become and their approach to this idea of not working. So they looked at him and said, hey, you picking up your mat is a problem. So they began to challenge this guy. Right? They challenge him, and then they ask him, who did this? Who told you you could? How did this happen? And this guy does something fascinating. He just throws Jesus under the bus, doesn't he? Well, I was just laying there. You know, I mean, I was doing my own business, you know. I was like, hey, I want to look at the pool. And this dude goes, hey, get up. Take your mat and walk. And so I did. I got up. I took my mat and walked. Now, he didn't know Jesus' name, but he just flat out threw Jesus under the bus. But here's what we need to know. For these Jewish people, this was a big deal. For them, keeping the rules was more important than anything else. Keeping the rules trumped compassion. Keeping the rules trumped kindness. Now, here's what is fascinating to me, because you probably haven't studied this, but let me, let me encourage you with this. The rules that they established weren't even God's rules. God's rule was keep the Sabbath day holy. Think about me, honor me, worship me. And then he says, I don't want you to work on the Sabbath. But work in the original language, it, it implies the idea of working to make a living. That's what it's talking about. It wasn't about turning a light switch on. It wasn't about picking up your mat. It wasn't about kneading out some dough. That's not what God intended. That's not what God wanted. But they had taken what God had established, and they built on it and built on it and built on it and built on it. So now they have their own set of rules, which is very, very legalistic. And I just want to ask you this question. Do you wrestle with legalism in your life? Now, for most of us, probably not in the, in, the, in the area of expectations of others. But I think many of us struggle with it in expectations of ourselves. Because I hear people say this kind of stuff all the time. Well, you know what? If I would do more for the Lord, I feel like he would love me just a little bit more. If I, if I was a better person... I feel like God would accept me a little bit more. Have you ever heard people say that kind of stuff? Now, I want you all to look at me. Listen to me. Listen to me. 
The greatest demonstration of the love of God happened on the cross of Calvary. And it doesn't matter what evil you do or what triumph you have. He is never going to love you more or less than he loves you exactly right now in this moment because he demonstrated it by sending his son to the cross. Amen? There's nothing you're going to do. You can do the evil of the world or the greatest things in the world. His love is never, ever, ever changing. See, we have to add adjectives to our word like unconditional love. Well, that's already how God loves. God loves unconditionally. You're never going to be loved more than you are right now. So put this legalism aside. And listen, you're never going to be as accepted as you are right now. Listen, if there's anything I know in my life, I blow it and you blow it and we all blow it. But if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we still stand here today forgiven, loved, accepted, and children of God. And there's nothing that's going to change that for you. And so that notion and that tendency that we all fight going, oh, if I could just sin a little bit less, God would probably love me a lot more. No. Desire to sin less so you can look more like Jesus because you're already loved. And I think for you and I, listen, I think for you and I, we've got to fight the notion of legalism. Because if we're not careful, the idea of being all in will be driven by performance rather than passion. Right? If we're not careful, our sense of being all in will be driven by performance, not passion. And for many of us, the hurdle we face is legalism. Now, when you look at the story, there's a guy who holds on to superstition and some Jews that hold on to legalism. And I love how the story ends. Because in the ending of the story, it answers a question I think we've got to ask this morning. And it's this, how do we hurdle legalism and superstition? How can we hurdle legalism and superstition in our lives? Look with me in verse 14. There's three things I want you to notice. Verse 14 says this. Afterward, Jesus, said, uh, Jesus uh, found him in the temple, talking about the guy healed. And he said to him, listen to this. See, you're well. Sin no more. Then nothing worse may happen to you. It's an interesting phrase. So how can we hurdle superstition and legalism in our life. Number one, deal with the sin that's in our life. Deal with the sin that's in our life. What was the sin in the life of this guy? What was in the sin that was in the life of the guy that was crippled? It was him clinging to superstition. That was his sin. Right? He, cl he clung on to it. He held on to it. And he like wrapped his arms around it thinking that the pool was his savior, not Jesus. And Jesus tells him, sin no more. In other words, let go of superstition. It didn't work for you. I did. You got to let it go. And I want to say this morning, if we're going to hurdle legalism and superstition in our lives, we got we to deal with the sin in our life. And it may be the sin of legalism, it may be the sin of superstition. It could be a lot of different sins. But if we're going to be all in for Christ, we've got to deal with the sin that is in our lives. And Jesus said to him, did you pick up on that? See, you are well. Now, why would you say that? See, I healed you. Not the water. You never made it in the water. I did this. And then Jesus said something fascinating. He said this. He said, a sin no more that you, that nothing worse may happen to you. Why would Jesus say this? Because he wanted him to know that if you keep clinging to sin, sin has consequences. 
And if you cling to the sin of superstition and you choose to live this life putting your faith in superstition instead of putting your faith in me, you thought being an invalid for 38 years was bad, you wait for what waits for you in eternity. This is a powerful statement of Jesus. And I just want to say, if you and I are going to hurdle the things, the, the things that's in our life that's keeping us from being all in, we've got to deal with the sin in our life. Now, I know we don't like talking about sin, but don't we all have it in our lives? We do. We've all got those sins. It could be secret sins. It could be known sins. We've all got that sin that is wrestling and raging in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. And if we're going to be all in for him, we have got to deal with it. How do we deal with it? We repent. Because you can't fix it on your own. You can't remove it on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So number one, deal with the sin in our life. The second thing I want you to notice is found in verse 15 and 16. He says this, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The second thing we need to do if we're going to overcome the superstition and legalism in our life is we need to acknowledge that Jesus is truly what we need. I don't know about you. You don't need another amazing sermon. You don't need a special podcast. You don't need another book to read. Can I tell you what you need? You need Jesus. For whatever question is raging in your heart, whatever doubt is there, whatever struggle is there, the answer is always the same. And I'm not trying to give you a Jesus juke. I'm not trying to be cliche. I'm just telling you it's true. Whatever you need in your life right now, whether it be in your marriage, your finances, your relationships, your career, what you need is a touch from him. And so what happened to this guy? He later went back and said, oh, I know who it was now. It's Jesus. He healed me. Can I tell you one of the most amazing things that I get to hear from time to time is to hear your stories and hear all your stories basically in the same. Jesus changed my life. He did. You know why? Because you didn't change it. He did. And if we're going to hurdle the superstition and the legalism and whatever is keeping us from being all in, yes, we've got to deal with our sin, but also, secondly, we've got to acknowledge that Jesus is truly what we need. One more thing I want you to see. Verse 17 and 18. Look at this. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Listen to this. Making him equal with who? With God. The third thing that we've got to do, if we're going to hurdle whatever's keeping us from being all in, is we've got to see the heart of Jesus. What was the heart of Jesus? It was to heal this man rather than keeping man-made rules. Right? The heart of Jesus was compassion over man-made rules. And I love Jesus, the way he says things. I mean, he, he talk about wordsmith. Jesus was the perfect wordsmith because he does something and he says something here that if you were a Jew in the day, it was like a knife to the abdomen and then he just kind of twisted it just a little bit. Look what he said again. He said this, my father is working until now and I am working. So he's basically just said, I'm equal to the Father, and the very thing that you're most upset with me about is working on the Sabbath, and my Father, the one you call Yahweh, he's always at work. What? He rested on the seventh day. Now what is Jesus saying? 
Did God stop working on day seven? No. What did God do on day seven? He stopped creating. But the work of the Father is to sustain creation, right? What would happen if the Father took his hands off of creation? Right now, what would happen? It would collapse. So while the working to create stopped on day six, on day seven and moving forward, what did God do? God worked to sustain it. And Jesus says, as my Father is still working to sustain creation, it's okay with me on the Sabbath if I do the same. And they were offended by that. And I'm just telling you, as you read the story, if we are going to get through and get over and hurdle the things that keep us from being all in, we've got to deal with the sin in our life. We've got to acknowledge that Jesus is truly what we need, and we've got to make sure that our heart models the heart of Jesus, where compassion trumps man-made rules. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What is keeping you? from being all in. What is it? It may not be any of the two things we've talked about, but maybe there's something. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's the unknown. What's keeping you from being full throttle following Jesus? And here's how I want to challenge you as we end this mini-series. You ready? I want to challenge all of us. Let's hurdle our hurdles. Let's hurdle our hurdles by living obediently. Let's hurdle the hurdles that are in front of us by living obediently. For some of you, living obediently means that you need to surrender your life to Christ because you feel like God is telling you over and over again, I love you, I want you to know you, I want a relationship with you, my son died for you on the cross, would you just say yes to me? And for some of you, it's just simply going, yes, Jesus, I surrender my life. I believe that you died on the cross and I invite you in to be the boss, the master, and the savior of my life. For some of you, that's what obedient looks like, is saying yes to salvation. For some of you, living obediently means going, hey, you know what? I need to be serving the Lord. Serving here on a Sunday morning. Serving when we go to the community. I need to go and be like Jesus and be a servant so that I'm known for serving rather than just always consuming. And maybe you need to sign up for something like that. Maybe for some of you, living obediently is going, you know what? I need to be growing in my faith. And the only way I'm going to grow is to be in community with other believers. And you need to be obedient in that. Maybe for somebody here today, Maybe living obediently for you is like, you know what? I've never let the world know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I've never taken the step of faith and been baptized and let the world know that I have now trusted Christ and that I'm going to live the rest of my life for him. And maybe today your step of obedience is going, you know what, Doug? I need to go to the baptismal waters and I need to let the world know and this church know that I am a follower of King Jesus. So here's my challenge to all of us, starting with this guy. Let's hurdle our hurdles by living obediently. Whether that's accepting him in salvation, committing to serve, committing to grow, or letting the world know through baptism. Let's commit to obedience today. Let's all stand together if you would. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed.